0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm so pleased that you could join me today. My name is David Guzik, and here together on what is for me a Thursday afternoon, 12 noon West Coast time in the United States, whatever time it is for you and your time zone, I'm glad that you could join us. And what we do here on these Thursdays is we have a live question and answer time. Uh, if we've never been introduced before, I've been doing this for several years, but If anybody knows me outside of these question and answer programs, it might be from my online Bible commentary. I have just sort of this unusual ministry that God has given me, and that is the ministry of having an online Bible commentary uh, that comments on every chapter, and I suppose you could say every verse, (laughs) though I certainly don't have something to say about every single verse in the Bible, but it's an extensive commentary through the whole Bible, and some people find it helpful. So one of the things I like to do, though, is get together on these Thursdays and have an open time of question and answer, not only for our YouTube audience, but also for our TWR, that is Transworld Radio 360 audience, our TWR 360 audience. Uh, we welcome you. We're so glad to partner with that wonderful ministry that for so many decades has done an excellent job of reaching the world uh, for Jesus Christ with his word over shortwave radio and of course now the extensive work that they have with reaching uh, an online community through their website TWR 360. Today is a very special day because in happy commemoration of the fact that we have exceeded 80,000 subscribers, I just looked at the statistics, we're getting up close to 81,000 and look, I-, I want to acknowledge Compared to the big folks that are here on YouTube, we have a pretty small viewing audience, but I love our viewing audience, and I'm very grateful if it continues to grow at all, and so very happy to hit that 80,000 subscriber mark, and God willing, we'll keep on going into the future. But in recognition of reaching that 80,000 subscriber mark, we're going to give away two books today, two books to the same person And these are books that we, the ministry that I'm kind of a part of and that we do the Bible commentary from, is a ministry called Enduring Word. And with the permission of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr's family, we received permission to republish two of his books. The first one is Full Surrender, which is a marvelous devotionally oriented book. And then the second one is a historical book that he wrote uh, Dr. J. Edwin Orr had three earned PhDs, and this is essentially material taken from one of his doctoral theses on the Second Evangelical Awakening, the great, fantastic move of God that happened in the middle of the 19th century, uh, 1857 through 59 in the United States, 1859 through 61 in the UK. Uh, This is the historical study of that. We're going to give away these two books to one of you, our live viewing audience today. This is what you need to do. Number one, you need to subscribe to our YouTube channel. So there's a switch there, a button there, a place where you can click subscribe. Hey, we love it. If you also click notifications, that way, whatever we push out, you'll be made aware of. Let us also know not only that you've subscribed, but comment on your viewing location. In other words, we want to know what country you're viewing from. We love our international audience. And we also want to know what state, uh, if you're in the United States, or what province, if you're in Canada. Uh, we just love to know just where you're from. It's always encouraging us to see the breadth of our audience. So put that in during today's live Q&A. Now, by the way, if you happen to be listening to this video or watching this video later in its recorded version, sorry, the giveaway is already over. So if you want to in a comment, you can tell us where you are and you know what you're viewing from, but it won't really matter because this is for the live Q and A right now. And then this is what you have to do. This is the third thing you got to stick around to the end of the video to see if you've won our team And it's going to be Annie who does this for us today. Annie is going to take the entrance that comes in and just in her own magical way, she's going to randomly pick between them. And uh, the random winner will get this. And I'll send this out to you hopefully today. And you'll get it via priority mail, United States mail. So uh, the winner will randomly be selected and announced at the end of today's live Q&A. That's today, Thursday, August the 18th. And um our moderator, Devin, will announce when the entries are closed. It'll be shortly before the end of today's program. And then I'm going to announce the winner at the very end of today's program. Uh, so, again, the entries must be received in the YouTube side chat today during the live question and answer time. All right, well, kind of enough with those rules. Uh, I want to get on to... Uh, our lead question for today. Our lead question today comes from Laura. She submitted this question, I believe, from Twitter. And so, Laura, I hope you're tuning in. I hope you're going to catch this either live or later on um, in a recorded version. And, and here's how I would summarize Laura's question. I'm going to read you her question exactly, but I'd summarize this. What is marriage in the eyes of God? And here's a question from Laura. I have a serious question. What has to be in order to consider two people married in the eyes of God? Is it possible to have gotten married but not be married? Thank you in advance. Now, Laura, this is a good question. It's a question that many people ask. Here's my quick answer, and then I'll go on to give more of an explanation. Here's my quick answer, okay? Here's how I would phrase it. Marriage, in the eyes of God, is when a man and woman come together in committed, exclusive relationship, intended to last a lifetime, publicly, and according to the laws and customs of their community. Okay, that's, uh, again, that's not, uh, you can tell, it's not a Bible verse, But to me, as I bring together the different patterns and understandings that the Bible does present to us about marriage, I think that's a pretty fair summary. So let me explain that formulation to you phrase by phrase. I begin by writing this. It's marriage in the eyes of God is. So marriage is God's institution. It's not man's. God brought Adam and Eve together in the first marriage. That's in Genesis chapter 2. And the New Testament repeatedly looks back to Adam and Eve as the foundational example of marriage. Let me read you that passage, Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 21, where we read this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, again, that is the biblical pattern for what marriage is. One man, Adam, coming together with one woman, Eve, and that forms the marital union. Them coming together before God. Now th- that doesn't end our definition of what marriage is, but it certainly begins it. Matter of fact, let me add one more verse here to you, Malachi two eleven. I think here on the screen, I am going to have the wrong reference, so it's either Malachi chapter two verse ten or verse eleven. But um, it says about marriage that the Lord it speaks of marriage as the Lord's holy institution, which He loves. In other words, marriage is God's institution. It's not the invention of humanity. Now, I know that from, you know, the anthropologist or the sociologist or the political scientist or whatever, well, this is a human institution that's been put in by this culture, that culture. We, from a biblical perspective, would disagree. We would say, no, marriage is God's institution. Matter of fact, according to Malachi chapter 2, it's the Lord's holy institution which he loves. So, right there, marriage is, number one, in the eyes of God is when a man and woman come together. Now, marriage is reserved for a man and a woman. Same-sex unions are not marriages in God's eyes. In the definition of marriage that I gave just before, I do say, according to the laws and customs of their community, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later, but what I don't mean by that phrase, according to the laws and customs of their community, is that I don't mean that anything that the community says is marriage is marriage. In other words, the the community doesn't have the right to define everything that is true and right about marriage by its laws. A community may say some things, our marriage, that God does not say. And when that's the case, God's definition is more important. By its laws also, a community may say that a marriage is dissolved or divorced when God does not. And in both cases, God's definitions are more important. So again, going back, marriage in the eyes of God is when a man and woman come together in committed, exclusive relationship intended to last a lifetime. Now, the Bible repeatedly speaks against adultery, and it promotes the idea that the wife has every reason to expect her husband to be sexually faithful in marriage, and the husband has every right to expect the same of the wife. Because God hates divorce, as he says in Malachi, then couples come together, it should be with the intention that it would last until death do us part. Now, obviously, we know that because of the sinfulness of humanity, God has permitted divorce and has even given certain... Um, situations in which God will recognize divorce, but that's never the intention. Th- two people don't come together in a married relationship with the intention that they will divorce. They at least have the intention that this will be a lifelong relationship. And then in my definition, I say publicly and according to the laws and customs of their community. Now, again, this is according to the biblical pattern. In the Bible, we see marriages and weddings as just this. They're public community events. Does where you live require a marriage license and some kind of ceremony? Then get a marriage license and have some kind of ceremony. The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of ceremony to have, but the principles of it being public and being according to the laws and customs of the community, I believe that principle stands. That's how Jacob got married. That's how Ruth and Boaz got married. That's how the wedding in Cana was. Now, sometimes people have the idea, Adam and Eve didn't have any of that. God just married them in the Garden of Eden. We can get married the same way. But with Adam and Eve, There was no community beyond themselves. Those two were the whole community. Ever since the time of Adam and Eve, we see marriage being a public community recognized thing. Now, sometimes people want to promote the idea of a couple having a private, secret marriage before God. Often when they do that, they want to do it for less than pure motives. But a common justification for that is they say, well, now wait a minute. What if we were on a desert island and there was no one to marry us? Now, I, my answer to that, and by the way, that's been something that's been brought up to me through the 40 years that I've been a pastor. The answer has been always been the same. Yes, if you are deserted on an island and there's no community to recognize your marriage, then you can get married just like Adam and Eve. Until then, get married publicly and according to the laws and the customs of the community where you live. So, Laura, I don't really buy the idea that people can have a secret or a private ceremony and have what we might consider to be a truly recognized marriage before God, I don't think it works that way. Now, there is one other aspect to this that Laura may have in mind. I really don't know because all we have is her question as she presented it. Maybe it's a situation where she's raising the issue of a possible annulment of marriage. And what do I mean by an annulment of marriage? Well, simply this especially in the Roman Catholic Church, where obviously divorce is very much frowned upon. Sometimes a marriage would be invalidated because of what they would call deceptive practices going into the marriage, and therefore the marriage would be annulled, that is, considered never to have been valid, and a divorce would be unnecessary. Now, I believe that it's possible for this to be done just sort of as a legal trick so to speak. But there is some principle there where if somebody marries another person and is deliberately deceptive and fraudulent in how they present themselves, then it may not be considered a legitimate marriage and not to be a marriage before God. Let let me just give you an example. Let's say that somebody is already married to somebody else. Maybe they're, you know, living as married with that person. Uh, maybe they're separated from that person, but the divorce has never been made. And they obtain a marriage license under fraudulent premises, because whenever a person, at least in our, you know, place, anything I've been familiar with, wherever you're viewing this from, the, le- the laws and the customs may be different. But what I'm familiar with having to do with a marriage license is you have to... Uh, swear that you're not already married. Well, let's say somebody lies about that. They're already married to somebody. They get a marriage license. They have a church wedding or before a justice of the peace or whatever you want to call it. And then later on, the spouse finds out that, hey, wait a minute, you're already married to somebody. I would consider that to be a fraudulent marriage and worthy to be annulled to be accounted as it was never actually a proper marriage before God. So, I would give a allowance for annulment under certain circumstances. But again, we just have to admit that those circumstances can and have been um, abused at times. So, Laura, I hope that answers your question. Um, glad you asked it. And we're going to move on to the uh, live chat questions in just a moment. But before we do, I want to say one more time because there's probably some people who have joined us from before the time when I spoke this at the very beginning of the broadcast today. We're giving away two books, not one, but two. The two books that we, Enduring Word, have reprinted from the work of the great, late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. By the way, if you're interested in the ministry of J. Edwin Orr, go to his website. Uh, We'll put it in the details, or maybe Devin, our moderator, can put it in the comments. jedwinorr.com, a great link of audio and video resources, especially from the late Dr. Orr. We've republished a couple of his books, Full Surrender and the Second Evangelical Awakening, books that I recommend highly in honor of the fact that we have surpassed 80,000 subscribers. We're going to give away these books today to somebody viewing now during the live broadcast. If you're catching this on a recorded version later, sorry, you're just too late for this. But what I do just simply want to say is here's what you got to do. Let me go over the rules one more time. Uh, You need to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You need to comment in the comments telling us your viewing location Either the nation or the uh, state, if you want to give a city, that's fine, or the province that you're coming from, uh, do that during the live Q&A today, and then you got to stick around until the end of the video video to see if you're one of the ones who won the random drawing. I think we've got the details written down in the video details if you wanted to go to that. All right, with that, I'm going to click on over and take a look at what may have come to us in the live chat Kathy asks this question, Uh, Kathy on Facebook, I use your commentary almost every day on the Blue Letter Bible. I'm teaching healthy sexuality in a small Christian college and was studying your commentary about Genesis chapter 3 when I got to the part about the curses on Adam and Eve and how Jesus became a curse for us. Does this mean that the curses are no longer in effect from Genesis 3? Or just the curses that Moses talked about so extensively? Kathy, wonderful question. And I would say that when we take a look at those curses that Jesus pronounced upon uh, the serpent, upon Eve, the woman, and as a representative of women, uh, and then Adam as the man and the representative of men, we see how I think that... It's very difficult to say that those curses are erased today. For example, part of the curse is um, to the woman, he said, I'll multiply your sorrow in your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Well, you know, I mean, not to make light of it at all, but it's still pretty plain that women bring forth children in pain. Um, And then also we know the curse for Adam is, um, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Uh, in the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. In other words, uh, you're going to have to work hard for the food that you've eaten. That part of the curse is still, I think, enforced today. So, no, I don't think that Jesus erased the Adamic curse of Genesis chapter three, but rather he took the place of those who take all the curses under the Mosaic law. Kathy, a very important part of the Mosaic law. I would say that the the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai has three main features. And the three main features are this. First of all, the law that is the, the law that they're supposed to keep. Secondly, the sacrifices that they were supposed to make because they couldn't perfectly keep the law. But then finally, the choice that God gave Israel, and that choice would simply be this, the choice between blessing if they obeyed God and curse if they disobeyed God. God made this covenant very much with Israel that said that their future blessing or cursing would be very much dependent upon their obedience. Now, under the new covenant that Jesus Christ instituted with his death and resurrection, we are not under that system with God any longer. We are blessed freely in Jesus Christ because Jesus bore that curse. So instead of connecting the idea that Jesus bore the curse for us and satisfied the curse of God on our behalf, instead of tying that back to Adam and Eve, the Adamic curse in Genesis chapter 3, I would connect it more with the curses connected with the law of Moses. Now, ultimately, because of the work of Jesus Christ, even the Adamic curse will be redeemed and taken away. But that's not on this side of eternity. Well, right here, right now, believers in Jesus Christ are no longer under the curse relevant to the Mosaic Law. So, Kathy, I hope that helps you. And God bless you in the class that you're teaching. Second question here today comes from He is Returning Soon, wants to know what is the difference between sin, abomination, and defilement? Well, he is returning soon. You need to understand that the Bible gives us actually a very rich vocabulary of sin. It describes sin in many different ways. It describes sin just using that term sin, which basically means to miss the mark. There's a target that we're supposed to hit and we miss it. So, sin is true in that sense. It's missing a mark. Sin is described as transgression, that's going over a line. Uh, sin is described as a trespass, another way to describe going the line. It, again, we could just go on, there's many, many different words used to describe sin. So, I think that we can make small distinctions between, for example, the three concepts you present, sin, that's missing the mark, abomination, That was a word used in the ancient Hebrew vocabulary to describe a gross idolatry. That was an abomination. So when in Daniel, it speaks of the abomination of desolation, it's talking about a gross and offensive idolatry or idol that brings destruction, the abomination of desolation. Defilement is something that may or may not be directly connected to sin because a person can be defiled by something that did not involve an act of sin themselves. Um, uh, You could be defiled by coming in contact with a dead body. And perhaps the way that you came into contact with a dead body was not sin, but you would still be considered unclean or defiled and would have to go through a ritual cleansing. So, these concepts are all related in some way to sin and rebellion and such, but there is a distinction. Sin is missing the mark, abomination, at least in biblical vocabulary, is a gross idolatry, and defilement is somehow to be stained in some way, spotted by the defilement of sin and everything associated with sin. I hope that helps you there. He is returning soon. Next question comes from Sean. Excuse me while I take a little drink. Sean asks the question, I'm divorced from my ex-wife. I wanted to get back with her, but she wouldn't. I finally moved on with my life and she wanted to get back together. I'm engaged to someone else now, your thoughts. Sean, um, I'll give it to you straight here. First of all, you should watch the video that's on our YouTube channel, uh, Divorce. I think it's titled Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. Search for that video on the YouTube channel and go through it and listen to it because I lay down a lot of those principles. But Sean, your particular situation is complicated enough to where I really think you need to seek godly pastoral counsel on this. Um, Because there's a lot of individual aspects of this. Um, The state of your wife's life, both spiritually and emotionally, and when I speak of your wife, I mean your ex-wife, of course, the state of her life, where it's at. You need to carefully consider that. Um, you need to carefully consider what she's done and the kind of life that she's lived and the kind of life that you've lived since you separated or parted ways with your wife. You need to consider, would being remarried to your ex-wife, would it be truly a marriage in the Lord? I don't think It is as simple as Sean saying, which would I prefer? Would I prefer my ex-wife or would I prefer the woman I'm engaged to now? I don't think it's that simple. And so all I can say is you really need to do a deep dive with some wise pastoral counsel who can talk about this and learn about it in much greater detail than what you've given me. So I couldn't automatically approve it or exclude it, but it definitely needs a closer follow-up. So Sean, I'm sorry for giving you such an unsatisfactory answer, but I need to be honest with you. Uh, This is something that you need to be careful about because you're going to make a important decision if you go forward with marriage uh, with this woman that you're engaged to. And I would say this, Sean, there is a sense in which engagements are made to be broken. In other words, though you are engaged to this woman, you are not married to her. You're not. And you shouldn't regard yourself as being married to her. So that's another thing that you got to take into consideration with this. Sean, all I can say is get some wise pastoral counsel, ideally with a pastor who knows as much as possible about the whole situation. Next question comes from Min-Ki, Min-Kai, I'll say Min-Kai, writes this, My brother died. He was divorced and remarried. My sister-in-law wants to know what happens if she dies. Will he recognize her as his wife in heaven, and will they be together? Min-Kai, a very similar question was asked to Jesus. Uh, In the question that they asked Jesus, the religious leaders, they made an even more exaggerated way where a woman had seven husbands or something like that, multiple husbands. And then the religious leaders wanted to ask, well, whose wife will she be in the age to come? And Jesus answered that question by saying, you don't really understand how eternity works. That for us on a human level, our marriage is the most important, most vital, most you know important relationship that we have on this earth on a human level. But what we have with God and the fellow people of God in heaven so far surpasses what we have in marriage that marriage is put in a completely secondary position in heaven. Jesus even goes so far to say that in heaven... We are neither married nor given in marriage, but we're like the angels in heaven who seem to be beyond such things. That's not to put down marriage relationship as it exists right here on earth, but it's simply to exalt the glorification we will receive in heaven. So, Minkai, I would just simply give the same answer to your sister-in-law, by the way, sorry to hear about the passing of your brother, but I would give the same answer to your sister-in-law, that in marriage, relate. excuse me, in heaven, relationships are fundamentally different, including the marriage relationship. And I think that's a good way to understand it, to where we, it, it will not be a concern for us in heaven. Let me put it to you that way. Um, before I go on to the next question from Mar Maritza, I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. Let me just say again, uh, I hope you're registering for the giveaway. Later on, we're going to give away uh, these two books to one of our live viewers. If you're watching this recorded, sorry about it. You'll have to catch us live sometime. Um, these two books, Full Surrender and the Second Evangelical Awakening, will be sent to you. And you just have to tell us where you're viewing from. You have to click that subscribe button. And you need to stick around to the end of our broadcast. Because at the very end, we're going to ask you to contact us and give us your postal address. And if you don't stick around, then we're never going to be able to contact you for that. So anyway, we'll do that at the end of our broadcast time. Next question comes from Maritza. Maritza asks this, Can a divorced woman marry another man again? Would the new marriage be approved or blessed by God? Maritza, again, I want to recommend to you, and hopefully we can put a link to that video in either the live chat or in the details. But Maritza, I want to... Uh, recommend to you the video I did on divorce, marriage, and remarriage. I think that's a helpful way to answer your questions, but I'll, I'll give you a quick summation. Maritza, it depends on the circumstances of the divorce because God gives two definite allowances for divorce. That is when there has, the marital bond has been broken By sexual immorality. That's one allowance for divorce. The other allowance for divorce is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. If a divorce is under that umbrella of what God has said, He will recognize a divorce, then I believe that the divorce is actually a divorce and a person is free to marry again. However, if a person has a divorce that's recognized by the state or by the community, but not by God, then I don't think that person is free to remarry. I think that person in God's eyes could and should be regarded as if they were separated and not divorced. So that's the quick answer. But really, Maritza, I recommend that you take an hour of your time Of course, it would be faster if you sped up the speed, but take an hour of your time and go online and watch that video that I did regarding divorce and marriage and remarriage. Next question comes from Rebecca C., who asks, can we marry someone from another faith or should we wait for the Lord? Rebecca, I would say, you should wait. Now, I know that's a difficult answer because there's a lot of people, a lot of Christian men or women who are very lonely and they look at their life and they look at the future and they say, "Um, I'd rather be married to an unbeliever or someone from a different religion than not be married at all. And again, I understand that I have very little judgment for a person in that situation, knowing the difficulty that they live with. But I would say this, I think it is unwise in the eyes of God. It is an example of what Paul spoke against about being unequally yoked. In other words, um, it's like a pair of oxen that have a yoke together, and it's not equal. You're not pushing or pulling, however you want to say, you're not pushing together in the same direction. When somebody belongs to either no religion or another religion, and they marry a Christian, you have two people for whom the fundamental purpose of their life is different. You have two people for whom uh, the most important things in their life are declared to be in different categories altogether. Now, when we say that, I'm not meaning to imply for a moment that there's not people of good character who who could make a a good spouse uh, who either do not believe or belong to a different faith. And I I don't want to imply that at all because that's just not true. And I don't want to imply either that if you marry a believer, someone who's a Christian, that that automatically means that everything's going to be wonderful and easy in your marriage. That's not true either. But the laws of the Old Testament were very strong for ancient Israel, that they were not to marry outside their faith. And that same pattern is presented to us in the New Testament. So, uh, Rebecca, I would just say that it's not recommended. And I know uh, many people who have experienced great, significant grief in their life because they chose to marry someone of a different religion than Christianity or of no religion, including, Lee, including no Christianity. Now, uh, again, I, I, the Bible has a different answer for someone who is a believer— and is in a marriage to someone who's not a believer or believes a different religion. To that person, the Bible has a different thing to say. It says, hey, stay in there, be godly. Maybe God will use you to be the instrument through which your spouse will come to faith. But that's a different question than the question, should I go ahead and marry someone of a different religion or of no religion at all? So I hope that helps you there, Rebecca. Next question comes from Fernando. Fernando asks, From the beginning, women could have kids without pain, but because sin, they can't. Will there ever be a time in history when women can have kids without pain? Fernando, good question. But first of all, all we can do is assume that if Eve had not um, been under the curse because of Adam's sin, that she wouldn't have had pain in childbirth because we don't have any record of babies being born before the curse was handed down. So, in theory, what you say seems to track right along with the scriptures. I'm just saying that we don't have a biblical record of a baby being born without pain. Obviously, now women experience significant pain in childbirth. But your question is, will there ever be a time in the future... When women can have kids without pain. Well, I I don't know that it'll be maybe, let's just say this, maybe during the millennium. Now, look, when we talk about the millennium, we're talking about something that has to do with God's unfolding plan for the future. And I want to respect the fact that Christians from different backgrounds have different opinions on the details of how God's plan will unfold for the future. I mean, I have my understanding of what the Bible says, and uh, but I realize that there's other believers who are wrong about those things. Look, I'm saying that half in jest, because of course I think they're wrong. I would not hold an opinion that I knew to be wrong, but I want to say it respectfully because obviously they think they're correct and I'm in the wrong. But beyond all that, I believe that there will be a literal reign of Jesus Christ over this earth for a thousand years. I believe that's what the Bible describes. And during that time, there will not be an elimination of the curse because, for example, the scriptures tell us that it seems that people will still die during that thousand years. It's just that their lifespan will be greatly lengthened. And then other aspects I could go on. So, it seems that the curse is not eliminated during that millennium, but it is greatly, if we could use the word, lessened. So maybe the right answer to that, Fernando, is that um, during the millennium, there'll be just a tiny little bit of pain for women in childbirth. Maybe like plucking out a hair. I don't know. I'm being uh, somewhat in jest about that. But uh, I could see that perhaps... There would be a great lessening of the pain as a way of God sort of miraculously giving back some of what was lost during the curse. I hope that's helpful for you there, Fernando. And I'm going to move on to the next question from Popol, who says, during the tribulation, it says that the days will be shortened. Will the 24-hour day be shortened? No, Pope. I don't believe that's talking about the 24-hour day. I I think it's referring to that period. And and by shortened, I would specifically understand that to be that God is saying that it won't go on forever. I think that several of the descriptions of the Great Tribulation, especially given by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and then later on in the book of Revelation— I think that those descriptions tell us about a time that is so horrific that if people who were in the midst of those times had no hope that those times would end, if the people who were in the midst of those times were led to believe that those times would last forever without end, then it would drive them to absolute despair. But God gives them hope by saying, no, this time will not last forever. Uh, It will be shortened. It will have a end and an end relatively soon. So I don't think that's speaking of a shortening of the 24-hour days. Quick plug again, give us your location, click subscribe, hang around to the end, and you'll be entered into the random drawing for the giveaway of these books. I know I keep holding them up before you guys, but look, I, I really like these books. And I'm very happy that the family of the late Dr. J. Lenore gave us the permission to republish these because I think they're valuable books. If you don't get one, they are available on Amazon. Just look up for these books, Full Surrender. And the second Evangelical Awakening, you can get them on Amazon. Uh, and then uh, they're also available in Kindle format on Amazon. So next question comes from SNL asks what are your thoughts about the pentecostal denomination i don't want to get involved if they're practicing anything unbiblical okay well snl let me just tell you that the only answer i can give you is not helpful for you in your situation because the only answer i can give you is you're gonna have to check out the individual church um The pastor, the leaders of that church, how they do things, what's taught, the whole atmosphere of leadership, the exercise of spiritual gifts, if it's done in a biblical or maybe I can say mostly biblical way, that's what you'll have to take a look at. Because there can be such a variance between churches that are of the various Pentecostal denominations that I really can't give you any adequate answer to that question. Uh, Right up the street from where I live here is a wonderful pastor, Pastor Reno and his church, South Coast uh, Church. They are a remarkable church and they are of a Pentecostal denomination. But Pastor Reno is a man of God. He pastors his church in a godly way. It's a good, healthy church. I don't have the slightest reservation of anybody I know being a part of that congregation, and it is a Pentecostal church. It's a belongs to a Pentecostal denomination. But would I give a blanket approval of every Pentecostal congregation or the majority of churches within any particular denomination? No, I would not. So, SNL, all I can say is that you have to check it out one by one. Um, There are definitely, definitely some healthy, good Pentecostal churches out there, and there are definitely some that are not so healthy and not such a good place for discipleship, evangelism, and growth in the Christian life. Next question comes from Barry. Let me take a little sip here. Barry asks, What was the point in Caesar Augustus requiring registration for everyone, including Joseph and Mary in Luke chapter 2? Barry, the answer to that is pretty simple. It was taxation. And in order to get an accurate and a uh, comprehensive taxation... They had everybody go home to the fan, to the location where their family, where sort of their tribal line, so to speak, their clan, if you want to use that terminology, was registered. And so it was to give a accurate and comprehensive taxation of the people in the Roman Empire. So that was Augustus's motive in doing it. That was his whole point was to achieve an accurate and comprehensive taxation. It's the same reason why uh, whatever country you live in, they want to know your name. They want to know your address. They want to know whatever number identifies you before the government. In different countries, they call it different things. In the United States, we call it a social security number. So they want to know all the details. Why do they want to know those details? So that you can be accurately, and if I may say, comprehensively taxed. So, that's why Caesar Augustus did it. And they wanted to organize people according to their family. You could use the word tribe. You could use their clan, sort of in a Scottish sense. But their family, their broader family group, they wanted them to organize. Therefore, Joseph and Mary uh, had the obligation to go down to Bethlehem from where they lived in Nazareth. By the way, Joseph and Mary may have welcomed the opportunity to go down to Bethlehem because no doubt there was a lot of gossip and um, whispering behind their back having to do with Mary's pregnancy uh, which emerged before Joseph and Mary were actually married. So, hope that's helpful for you there, Barry. Next question comes from Zemeraldo. asks this question, Why did God want to stop Balaam, who wanted to curse Israel? Israel was under God's protection. Is Balaam's curse effective anyway? Okay, Smaraldo, you're asking the right man for this question. Because, and I'm pretty excited to say this, I just finished my extensive revision of my commentary on the book of Numbers. Thanks be to God. I've been working for more than a year and a half on my revision to my commentary in the book of Numbers, and it's not up on the website or on the app yet. It will be soon, but it's not up yet, hopefully soon. Uh, But uh, not long ago, I did a pretty in-depth study on Balaam because I'm just going through and revising my commentary, hopefully doing it better a second time around. I think it had been more than 20, 25 years since I'd gone through uh, the numbers commentary. So, God did not want Balaam, who was a pagan prophet. He was a pagan diviner. Balaam was not an Israelite, but he was a pagan man hired to put a curse upon Israel. Balak... The king of Moab was so terrified of Israel, even though God told the Israelites, do not attack Moab, Balak didn't care. He thought that he was next in line to be attacked and defeated by the Israelites. So out of his fear, Balak hired Balaam. God told Balaam, don't go with those men. But Balaam was so insistent upon doing it that actually you could say that God allowed him to do what his sinful heart wanted to do, that was go out and be a prophet for hire. God allowed that. However, God would not allow Balaam to directly curse Israel. So, When Balak hired Balaam, Balaam told him, listen, all I can do is do what God tells me. And each time, instead of cursing Israel like the king of Moab wanted him to, Balaam ended up pronouncing a blessing over Israel, much to the annoyance of King Balak. Well, at the end of it all, though, we find that Balaam was responsible for advising the king of Moab on how to bring Israel under God's curse. And that was by leading them into idolatry and immorality. And that's exactly what the king of Moab did under the council of Balaam. And through that sort of back doorway... A curse came upon Israel. Now, God used it all for good, there's no doubt about that, but uh, that's the story of Balaam. God told Balaam, don't go, and he allowed the stubborn and disobedient prophet to go, even though he told him not to. And Balaam was not able to curse Israel in any direct sense. Instead, Each time he prophesied, he pronounced blessing upon Israel and not cursing because God gave him blessing to pronounce. It was only later in the counsel or the advice that Balaam gave to the king of Moab that he gave him instructions on how Israel could bring a curse upon themselves. Hope that's helpful for you there, Zemeraldo. Okay, next question comes from Jordan. Jordan says, I feel called to the ministry. Praise the Lord for that, Jordan. Do you believe that one has to always be anointed by elders before stepping into pastorship? And Jordan, you write ALWAYS in capital letters. Well, Jordan, I would say no, not always, but I would say normally. Look, we we can always think of exceptions, But normally, if you are called and if you are qualified for ministry, somebody else is going to see that. Hopefully many people will see it. And is it possible for somebody to actually be called, to actually be qualified, and nobody else can see it? That has happened from time to time. So I, I can't say it's always the case, but normally... When a man is called, when a man is is equipped for ministry, other people can see it. And really, that's what the recognition of laying on of hands should communicate. This man is um, ready. This man is not ready to know everything that there is to know about ministry, but ready to at least make a beginning in the case of ministry uh, he's called and he's equipped. We we approve of this man going into ministry. That's how I would put it, Jordan. I'd put it uh, just simply on those terms. Um, normally, a person should be recognized, whether it's anointed by elders or not. I mean, I think that's a, a, a normal way for that to happen. But normally, somebody's calling and equipping should be evident to others But I wouldn't make it an absolute thing. All right. I'm hoping that we're getting close to our time of being able to pronounce our winner. Here we go. Um, Contest winner. Are you ready for this? A little bit of drama for our full surrender. Kathy Gonzalez from Hammond, Indiana. Kathy, congratulations. I'm going to mail these books to you. You're going to have to give some kind of email address or contact information. Work that through our moderator, Devin. Uh, But when we get your postal address, Kathy Gonzalez from Hammond, Indy, I want to thank you for being one of our viewers today. Congratulations on getting these books, and I'm going to mail them to you. Now, Kathy, of course, I'm not going to sign these books. I'm not the author of these books. We just republished them. But I'm very pleased that you won uh, our giveaway today. And Kathy Gonzalez of Hammond, Indiana, you're going to get those books today. Folks, that was our last question. Um, I'm so pleased that you could join us today. And again, um, we appreciate your prayers for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. We seek to make Bible resources available to a very broad audience, absolutely free. Matter of fact, in our website, EnduringWord.com, and all of its subdomains, we have no paid ads. Zero. No paid ads. We want the user experience to be as good as possible for you, the person who might use our commentary. So, um, we need to get that information. Listen, please, please. Kathy, uh, you need to get back in touch with us. Otherwise, if we don't have that, we're going to have to be uh, giving away those same books next week again. But Kathy Gonzalez, hopefully you're going to be online here and we can get back your um, uh, your thing. So we're, we're going to give that just another moment. Let me just say one other thing about our resources. We also have an amazing app. The Enduring Word app is... Well, I said it was amazing, and it is amazing. We have a new version out now for a few months, and we are so, so pleased about the way that the app is going and the viewership on it. So please, you can join some of the hundreds of thousands of people who have downloaded this app and make use of it. So um, I'm understanding from our crew that we haven't heard back from Kathy Gonzalez. So uh, I may stay on just for a few minutes more. Um Thank you. I'm looking at the comments now. Uh, Amy or Anne and me. Brooks, thank you for that. Uh, John or Jen Estevies. Yes, we have an app. Okay, the app is freely available. There's no charge for this app. Go to your uh, Apple Store or go to your um, Google Play. It's freely available on there. And we're very happy about that. So, look, i tell you what we're going to do is we're going to call it here. If we can't get in touch with Kathy, then who knows? We'll have a giveaway or figure out a way to uh, get back to it another time. But thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you a lot. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.